My name is Kevin Briggle, and I'm the minister to children over at the Antioch campus, and I'm really, really excited to be with you all here this morning. Um, I've not preached in this room since it was Fellowship Baptist in 2014, and the last time I was in this room when it was active uh, was 2016, and I, I stood right there, and I was doing Baby Shark with AIM during VBS week. Um, and I promised Pastor Derek I would not do Baby Shark today. Um, so anyway, uh, before we get started, uh, I did have a favor that I, I wanted to fulfill. Um, I, I promised Pastor Micah that I would tell him, uh, tell you guys how awesome he is. Uh, he made me <laughs> promise uh, to do that. So just pretend I said something heartfelt and, and sincere. Micah is awesome and I love him. Uh, but jokes aside, we're going to be talking about uh, heaven this morning. I'm grateful to be preaching uh, specifically this passage uh, because it means that we're done with the weird stuff. Uh, we're done with the beasts. We're done with things with multiple heads. Uh, we're done with angels sickling the earth and bowls and plagues. Uh, we are done with the weird stuff. Can someone give me an amen? Amen. amen. All right. This is happy stuff. We're talking about heaven. Uh, but the bad news is that some of this stuff is debated. And it is not crystal clear. And unfortunately, because it's not crystal clear, uh, some damage has been done to heaven. Uh, people have taken it and they have twisted it and they have made it what it's not supposed to be. They've made it what they want it to be. Um, and I don't even want to give credit to certain TV shows or, or movies, uh, but I just want to clear a couple of these up. Um, there's not likely to be a milkshake bar next to a chocolate waterfall, although that would be awesome and I would be totally into that. There's not likely to be a stable of unadopted puppies. I would be into that, but that's probably not going to be there. And that's kind of the heart of, of what's going on, is they've taken heaven and they've twisted it into what they want it to be. And if we're honest, we're sometimes really only interested in heaven if it's our version of, of heaven. Um, and so that begs the question, uh, what is heaven like? And, and really, uh, we don't know. Uh, we don't know what it's like. And I remember when I first came to Jesus about 10, 10, 11, 12 years ago, whenever that was, um, and someone told me what it was going to be like, I was like, man, that sounds awful. Because um, he said, oh, we'll just, it's like one long church service, and we'll just sing songs and hear someone preach. And I was like, are we going to have enough worship songs? Are we going to start repeating? And I, I really don't want to sit there and, and listen to some guy preach forever. And so I was like, man, I'm just not into that at all. And that's, that's not what heaven is like. Um, and in this passage, uh, we'll, we'll see that, and we'll get one of the clearest pictures of heaven that we have in Scripture. And unfortunately, it doesn't answer all of our questions, and in fact, it, it creates more questions than it answers. But what we can be certain of is, number one, that heaven is awesome, and number two, heaven is awesome uh, because of God. So um, the way that this will work this morning is I will read through a chunk of Scripture and then I'll, I'll kind of talk about it. I'll give you some application um, at the end. So before we jump in, would you uh, please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this place that you have prepared for us. And God, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Father, there is not a person in this room that has any interest in what I have to say. So, Father, let us hear from your word. Let us hear what your word has to say. Father, we thank you and we love you. Amen. 
Amen. All right, so if you would please open your copies of God's Word to uh, Revelation 21, verse 1. And I, I think the words will be behind me on the screen. So let's read the first, the first eight verses together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, to play, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so John has this final vision of the new heaven and the new earth coming down, merging together. The old ones have passed away. And this is a completely new creation that is without sin, that is without death, that is without evil. And John says something odd in verse 1. If you would just turn your eyes to verse 1 one more time. At the end he says, and the sea was no more. So does that mean that there's no water in heaven? Does that mean that there's no surfing in heaven? Well, maybe, maybe not, I don't really know, but what John is getting at here is that there is no more evil. You see, the sea to the ancient Israelites and to the first century people, the sea represented evil. It was a source of evil. Think back just a few chapters to Revelation 13 when John saw the beast coming out of the sea. Think back to the book of Daniel when Daniel saw the beast coming out of the sea. So this was a source of evil, and it has been sealed up. It is no more. There's no Potential. There's no chance of evil in this place. And we know that it is good. Jump ahead just real quickly. Look at verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And so the first century was, was not a great time to live. It, crime was, was really, really out of control. And if you were fortunate enough to have a gate around your dwelling place or around your city, chances are it wasn't open very often, and, and nobody traveled by night. Traveling by night was, was basically a death sentence. Your chances of, of being murdered or, or mugged or assaulted went up astronomically at night. And so John is telling us that this place, this heaven, is good, and there's no evil. It's void of danger and anything that is against God, and, and this is a joyful thing to look forward to. Take a look at verse 3. A loud voice calls out and tells us that God will dwell among men and we will be his people. And we'll talk about this more later towards the end. But this should be a great comfort to us when, when God says, I will dwell among you and you will be my people. The people reading this would have understood this to be covenant language. This is language that God used with Abraham. He used with the Israelites. I will be your God and you will be my people. 
And so when Israel was unfaithful to punish them, God said, you are not my people anymore. And Hosea, Hosea even names one of his children, not my people. And this would have been one of the worst things, the, the droughts and the famines and, and whatever, who cares? But when they heard God say, you are not my people, it would have been heartbreaking. It would have been the worst thing for them to hear. But now the opposite is true. Now the opposite, God is saying, you are my people. You belong to me. And he goes even further in verse 7. Look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. This is so much more than just being God's people. This is so much more than just being in covenant with God. God has adopted us into his family. He has made us his own. He has given us a name and he has given us a place and he has made us his own family. Church, this is our reward for being faithful to the end. This is what lies at the end of the narrow path of following Jesus. Our, tr- our prize and our treasure is God himself. This is what we have to look forward to. And sometimes people ask me when they, when they find out that, that I work at a church, when they find out that I follow Jesus, they'll ask me if, if I think it's worth it. Uh, they'll say, man, you, you live a life of sacrifice and, and you live by strict rules and, and you don't really enjoy the things that I enjoy. Do you think it will be worth it at the end? And when I read this passage, the answer is yes. Because we will be with God. We will be his and he will be ours. And take a look at verse 4. Because God is dwelling directly with us, because we are his people, because we are his sons and daughters, and because he has made all things new, there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more mourning, no more suffering, and no more loss. God will literally wipe away every tear from our eye. He will comfort us like a father comforts his children, and he will make every wrong right. And this place is hard to imagine. It really, really is. Because we're so used to suffering, we're used to pain, we're used to loss, we're used to death. It's, it's become a part of our everyday life, and that's not the way that God intended it to be. But we're used to the world beating us down, we're used to the world trying to rob us of hope, we're used to death. But here in this place, because God dwells, because we will be his people Because it is void of evil, cancer has been wiped out, death has been defeated, sin has been eradicated, and suffering has been erased. And we know that this is true. God says that it's true. Even though it's hard to imagine, we can have faith in it. And we can have faith because God ties this promise directly to his being. Take a look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning And the end to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage. And so we know that this is true. We know that this is a place that God has prepared and that this is a real place that we can have real hope in because God ties it directly to his being. He says, it is done. And when God says something is done, it is done. And we can have faith in it because of the one who was at the beginning and the end of all things. The one who is in control, the one who is trustworthy and true, says that it is done. But this place isn't for everybody. Take a look at verse 7. 
To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When I look at this list, and when I look at who I am, I know that that second list characterizes me. I am faithless. I am cowardly. I have lusted. I have hated my brother. I have worshipped idols, and I have lied before. And so I know based on my merits that this is not a place for me, and I am destined for the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And I'm destined for the second death. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But this is the portion for those who are apart from God, those who don't belong in his family, those who are not his people. And contrast that with what God says throughout Scripture, that his people, he will be their portion, he will be their prize. Psalm 73, 26, God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is what we will receive. God is what lies at the end of the path. God is what we will get. Take a look at verse 9 and following. And then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy, the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like jasper clears crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed on the east, three gates, and on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we'll stop there for just a second. So John sees this new city, this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and he introduces it. First, as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And this should give us a hint to what this city actually is. But let's take a look at this real quick because there's uh, something that runs in common throughout the city. The city has 12 gates, and at the 12 gates it has 12 angels. And the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are on every gate. And the 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, the city is 12,000 stadia. That's a little bit further down, which is about 1,400 miles. The wall that they measured was 144 cubits, which is 12 squared. And the foundation of the wall had 12 different stones on it, and the 12 gates are 12 pearls. You may have noticed just for a second that I said the word 12 just a few times. And so what this is letting us know is that this city is no city at all. This is not a real city. What this is, it's the people of God. The number 12 represented a perfect number. It was a number of perfection, but it also represented God's people, right? Think back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Think back to the 12 apostles. And so what this is letting us know, because it has the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and it has the name of the 12 apostles, this is God's people, Old Testament Israel, New Testament church, united together. Finally, complete together. In perfect harmony. There's no bickering. They're unified together. 
And then take a look down at verse 22. Verse 22, in this city, in, in, among, the peop- among the people of God, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives light, and the lamp is the Lamb. Its light will walk the nations, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. And so what we see here is that there's no need for a temple because God's presence will be everywhere. We, in heaven, we won't have to go somewhere to worship. We won't have to go somewhere to experience the full presence of God. It will be everywhere. And contrast that for a second with the Old Testament. Once a year, the high priest was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, which was this really special part of the temple where it was God's full and complete presence. They were only allowed to go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And now in the new heaven and the new earth in heaven, we will fully and freely experience God's presence forever. We will be united with our creator. We will be restored to where we should be. And there will be no greater joy than being restored to God as his people united as one. And even more than that, what's interesting to note, if you would take a look at verse 17. I'm sorry, uh, verse 16. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also angel measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. And so what we see here is that this city is a perfect cube, right? And it's paved with gold. And there's only one other instance in Scripture where we see a perfect cube that's paved with gold. And that is the Holy of Holies. And so what this is letting us know is that heaven will be one giant holy of holies. We will be in the immediate and complete presence of God at all times. We won't have to worry. We won't have to fear like the priests did, right? They would tie ropes around their waist and they would wear a bell in case one of them died in the presence of God. They could pull them out of the holy of holies. We will be united as God's people with God dwelling forever. Isn't that amazing? That's absolutely amazing. And then John says something kind of odd. John says, there is no moon, there is no sun. And we shouldn't view this as scientific. We shouldn't say, okay, well, if you take away the moon, then the tides, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? That's not the way that these people would have read the letter. When they read, there's no sun and, they, and there's no moon, they would have understood that to be that there's no idolatry. You see, the sun and the moon were frequent objects of worship in the first century. And here, our object of worship, the glory that we seek, the glory that is on display at all times, will be God's glory. There's no idolatry. There's no worship of creation. God is the object of our worship day and night. God is the object of our affection forever. We won't have celebrities. We won't have people propped up by our own worship. The only thing that will matter in heaven is God and his glory. Take a look at, at chapter 22. 
chapter 22. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves were for the healing of nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no night no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So John gives us this picture, which should sound relatively familiar to us. He talks about a river, he talks about a tree, and he talks about fruit. And for a lot of us, this brings up images of Eden. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see God in heaven has restored his creation back to its original state. This is a better, more perfect Eden where we will dwell with God, he will dwell with us, and we will be united as his people. We'll be free from, to eat from the tree of life. This, this river, which represents life, is literally flowing from the throne of God. We will see his face and his name will be on our foreheads and we will be in perfect fellowship with God. We will be his people and he will provide everything that we need. There's no more need of sunlight. There's no more need of the moon. God will be everything that we have and that will be enough. Everything that we've read up to in Revelation, everything that we've experienced and our Christian life and will experience is leading up to this. Restoration, relationship, and rest. This is where our hope should be, church. This is what we have to look forward to. It's not in carnal things. It's not in things that satisfy our flesh. It's not in milkshakes and puppies. But it's in the presence of God. Finally restored as his people with our creator. God is not a path to heaven, but God is heaven himself. I want to read this quote uh, from one of my favorite people in the world, John Piper, because I think that it speaks really well to uh, what we're talking about. John Piper said this, If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth, with all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, with all the natural beauties you ever saw, with all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, and no human conflict or natural disasters... Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And that's really what's going on here. That sounds awesome, right? That sounds like no conflict, no natural disasters and beauties and and all the things that we enjoy. But if Jesus is not there, then I don't want to go. And that's what makes heaven great is God himself. It's the presence of God. Our hope, our joy, our prize, and our treasure are God. So I want to give you guys three application points, and then, and then we'll close. First, our hope is being restored to God's presence. As I mentioned many times, and you guys have heard me say over and over, the presence of God is what makes heaven awesome. And we see this progression throughout the Bible of the tabernacle, the temporary temple that the Israelites carried around the wilderness. And then it moved to the temple, a more permanent location. And then eventually Jesus being the symbol of God's presence, and then the Holy Spirit. And now in heaven, 
God's presence will cover the earth. We will literally be in the holies of holies at all times in heaven. We will be in the immediate presence of God forever. And too many times when we're sharing the gospel, when we, when we think about the Christian life, we view Jesus as a path to heaven. We think, okay, if I accept Jesus and I endure him for a little bit, I get to the good part. I get to heaven. But that's not the case at all. Because what makes heaven awesome is Jesus. God will dwell among us. Take a look one more time at verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. This word dwell is a really, really interesting word. It's used five times in the New Testament, this specific word, and it's used all five times by John. And so John, what he has done is he has taken a noun and he's made it into a verb, because you can do that if you're an apostle. And what, he, what it literally means is it, it's the word for tabernacle. And so what verse 3 says, if you were to read it in the original language, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will tabernacle with them. And he does the exact same thing in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among them. So what this is letting us know is that we will be in the immediate and complete presence of God forever. And that's what makes heaven Awesome. Number two, our hope is being restored as God's people. We didn't have time to get to this because there's a lot here. But if you take a look at verses 19 through 21, it lists all kinds of jewels and gems, sapphire, emerald, carnelian, so on and so forth. And this list is a list that is very similar to a list that we see in Exodus 28. So you see the, the priests would wear these um, really beautiful jewels on their chest. And it was, it was a symbol that they were priests, that they were God's people, that they were serving the Lord. And here we see this city, which is God's people, adorned with these same jewels. And so what this is letting us know is that we will be restored as God's people and the beauty of this city, the beauty of God's people together, united with God, cannot be overstated. And the language here does not do it justice. In heaven, we'll be all together. We'll be a multiracial, multicultural body of believers united, finally, with the Lord. We'll be a world of priests. The holies of holy will extend throughout the entire earth. And we will be God's people. Number three. Our hope is being restored to God's purpose. And this is one of those things that I, I believe about heaven that um, people don't enjoy when I tell them. Because um, they're like, okay, well, what will we do in heaven um, if we're going to be in the presence of God forever? What, what are we going to do? Um, and it's a question that, that we try to answer here. What is our purpose? What, what am I here for? Um, and your purpose here on earth is the same as your purpose in heaven. You are here to glorify the Lord. You are here to serve the Lord. And so because of this Eden imagery that we see in chapter 22 with the, the rivers and the fruit um, and the tree, I think that we'll work in heaven. I think that we will have jobs, right? Just like Adam and Eve, they had jobs in the garden. They were to tend the garden. They were to be fruitful and multiply. And so I think that we will serve the Lord through our work in heaven. Maybe we'll have times of worship. I don't really know. And that's not really a hill that I am willing to die on, but I think we'll work in heaven. 
We won't grow weary. We won't grow tired. We'll have jobs, and we won't hate our jobs. We won't get caught in traffic. We won't have to deal with annoying coworkers. We won't have to deal with disgruntled bosses, and no one will steal our lunch out of the fridge. Okay, but we will enjoy our work. And like I said, this is not a hill that I'm willing to die on. Regardless of what we do, worship, work, whatever, whatever we do in heaven, we, we will be serving our purpose and we will be glorifying God as we do it. Um, this was a really fun sermon to prepare for. This was a really, really fun sermon to preach uh, because we could spend hours um, talking about heaven, discussing what heaven is going to be like and will we recognize people and, and so on and so forth, what are glorified bodies. Um, but here's what I don't want us to miss and here's what I want to leave you with. Too many times we think of heaven and salvation as something that will happen to us in the future. I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait for salvation. But what we miss is that those are things that happen right here and right now. Eternal life, the kingdom of God in heaven, start now. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven here on earth. He instituted it during his life, and we grow it as the church through the gospel. We can be in God's presence now. We can be God's people now. We can reflect heaven and serve our purpose right here and right now. Let's not wait for Jesus to return. Let's not wait to die. Let's, let's spread heaven here on earth. And if you are a Jesus follower, then you have a responsibility to grow the kingdom here. And it's a little bit like in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended up into heaven. The disciples were just kind of staring. And the angel was like, hey, what are you doing? Get to work. Let's not wait. Let's not just stare up into heaven and wait for Jesus to return. Let's get to work right here and right now. And as I said before, these, these lists that John gives us, based on my own merits, I am not qualified for heaven. And based on your merits, you are not qualified for heaven. But what qualifies us for heaven is the work and life of Jesus Christ. This place is for those who are his, those who he has redeemed, those who he stands in their place before the Lord. And the way that we get to that is through faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ. That he lived a perfect life here on earth, that he died the death that we should have, that he went to the cross for us, that he rose from the dead, he defeated sin and death forever. And this is a decision that you don't have to wait to make. You can make it right here, right now. You can cry out to the Lord to save you, and he will. We will also have Pastor Derek here. We will have uh, some elders and their wives up here. If you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, if you want to know more about this awesome place named Heaven, they will be here for you. Uh, so let's go to the Lord in prayer.